Okay, so uh, welcome to our speaker this evening, Aisha Fuentes. Uh, she's a trained conservator and technical art historian with a focus on Asian material culture um, and religion. She has uh, submit she submitted her PhD recently um, at SOAS on the use of human remains in Tibetan ritual objects and is now just started her post as lecturer in arts conservation at Northumbria University. Uh, Aisha has worked with sites and collections in the US, the UK, China, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Bhutan and Sudan. Her research and professional experience are focused on the treatment and handling of Buddhist material culture and Asian ritual technologies, as well as the promotion of a sustainable inclusive model of conservation centered on knowledge and exchange and accessibility. Uh, in her talk today, we'll hear about her research on the use and instrumentalization of human remains in Tibetan material religion, and with her expertise in arts conservation, we can look forward to an interdisciplinary approach to the understanding of these objects. So um, welcome Aisha, and yeah, you can start your screen share. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me and thank you all of you for having me. It's quite an honor to speak to this group. Um, I was saying earlier, I didn't imagine that I would be doing this in my sweatpants, but here we are um, in a COVID scenario. So, all right, let me get this up. Um, so before my time at SOAS, uh, as Isabel was saying, uh, my name is Aisha Puentes, and I'm currently stride lecturer in arts conservation at Northumbria University. And I also recently submitted my dissertation, uh, my PhD dissertation at SOAS University of London on the use of human remains in Tibetan ritual objects under the supervision of Christian Lutzenitz. Before my time at SOAS, I worked and trained as an objects conservator and technical art historian. Um, and I've worked in a number of museums and collections, as Isabella was saying, in the United States, where I'm from, and then also abroad, um, and chiefly in Asia. I come from a fine arts fabrication and arts handling background, so my research is very much based in engaging with materials and traditions of object making. Um, and my interest is in developing conservation as a research tool for documenting what I call cultural technology. So the methods, uh, the material methods and skills of cultural knowledge transfer. I first began researching the use of human remains in Tibetan ritual objects through iconographic study as a postgraduate student in art history, and then in my conservation training at the UCLA Getty Conservation Institute joint master's program in the conservation of archeological and ethnographic materials. During my conservation training, I cultivated a technical knowledge of human remains in cultural objects, and that is human remains which have been altered or maintained through a process of skill. Part of this engagement involved an in-depth study of the microstructure and morphologies of human femurs and crania, and these are the two bones which are most commonly used in Tibetan material religion, as well as their properties as substrates uh, for cultural objects. I worked with a physical anthropologist, for example, and bioarchaeologists, especially to learn to recognize human bone as a material and to diagnose its workability and to distinguish it from animal bone or ivory. In this image, which is taken from my postgraduate conservation work, you have the reverse of a bone ornament which has been carved from a section of human cranium. And it's been photographed in raking light 
um, its human substrate is recognizable through its size and shape, uh, the relative density of its inner and outer layers, and the character characteristic patterns of the interior capillaries. What I noticed when I made this image, however, and which led me to my doctoral work at SOAS, as well as this talk today, uh, were the ridges of raised material along the edges of the apertures or openings, which you see here. This bone was not broken, chipped, or sawed into place, but rather it was deliberately cut when it was still relatively plastic and workable. Through this image, I started to see evidence for cultural knowledge transfer through the fabrication of the object. So not only did someone know how this ornament was meant to look and function, uh, they knew how to select and control the substrate in order to produce the desired form. And I later found on my fieldwork, for example, and through my research that this workability can be further controlled uh, by soaking the bones in beer, for example, or by burying them in a particular type of soil for a, for a temporary period. At the same time, while researching these objects as a conservator and museum professional, uh, I found their misrepresentation in historic scholarship and museum records, both provocative and extremely problematic. Uh, this is an historic record which was shared with me by our recently departed colleague, John Clark at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Uh, and which cites Waddell's 1895 descriptions of Buddhist Tantra using the interpretive vocabulary of exorcism, magic, and devil dance. Other more recent records might mention specific practices like the black hat dance or yogini tantra, but often are full of technical generalizations drawn from secondary sources, uh, such as Nebeshki Woskowitz's oracles and demons of Tibet, which there's a quotation seen here, uh, that gives a number of specific criteria, saying, for example, that the bones of a Brahmin are best uh, for ritual use or those of women who died in childbirth. Um, but these details are given out of context of their ritual, social, and cultural conditions for efficacy. So I found myself wondering uh, why. You know, why is it, why is that a technical specification? Why, what is the cultural history of this valorization? Um, what or whose narratives substantiate these claims? And essentially, uh, why would some bones be better than others from a ritual or cultural perspective? Um, and how does that condition the transmission of material knowledge? And some of you know about the work of Andrea Lozari's like on the use of human bane, uh, bone in Tibetan Mahayoga Tantra, and I'll return to that source in a minute. In order to answer these questions, I decided to look at more objects and ask more and different types of people about them. Um, one of my problems with museum discourse is that it often seems to assume there can be no continuity between implements and the actual living practices of contemporary users, makers, etc. I'm lucky enough to know from experience that this is not accurate uh, and that these objects are still used, made, circulated, and valued within communities of practitioners across the Himalayas and Tibetan cultural region. So when I got to SOAS for my doctoral work, uh, my first task was to visit objects in UK collections. And I went to the VNA, British Museum, uh, Pitt Rivers at Oxford, National Museums Liverpool, and the Wellcome Collection. Um, and if you're curious about what the historical relationship between British museums and Tibetan material culture, then I invite you to read Claire Harris's work, uh, which I'm sure you all know. Um, but I went to these specific UK collections in order to document and study their examples. 
um, this was to develop my own material and formal knowledge, but also to facilitate field work across the region, uh, undertaken as a 12-month period of travel across Kham and Ando, uh, with a period in Dharamsala, as well as Ladakh, the Kathmandu Valley, and Sikkim, um, talking informally not only to monks and ritual specialists like Lama or Chopa, um, but also to students, lay practitioners, vendors, women of all ages and social stations, uh, taxi drivers, drivers, craftspeople, and artists, so really anybody who would talk to me. I often use photos of the objects which I'd taken in museums in order to engage my informants, and I shared them on my phone. I found that these materials, though specialized and subject to restrictions in access and handling, uh, were a legible and active part of the region's religious life and visual culture. Uh, almost everyone with whom I spoke had observational, anecdotal, or technical knowledge of these objects, their use and sourcing, as well as their uh, thoughts about their displacement or relocation away from practitioner custody. And they were well-versed in the commodification of these objects and their circulation as cultural properties. At the same time, based on my experience, I recognize that it is nearly impossible to generalize about the use of human remains in Tibetan material culture due to the region's broad range of geographically localized uh, religious, institutional, and historical bodies of knowledge on religious practice in Buddhist Tantra, um, as well as the infinite complexity of the individual identities, religious educations, experiences, and knowledge which conditioned the responses came to inform my work. However, uh, using this approach, I was able to connect some objects with specific narratives and historical continuities. So for example, you have this uh, shallow skull vessel, which is now in the collection of the, uh, in the welcome collection, and it exhibits an accumulated grime and topical polish that indicated being consistently held uh, in this way as I demonstrate on the left. Though there was nothing in museum records or accessible secondary sources which described such an object, my informants during fieldwork explained and even demonstrated how this object is used in Cham, which is, of course, masked ritual dance, um, and also shared documentation of its use, confirming the cause of the object's condition, such as this historic photo on the right from the Tibet museums in Dharamsala, uh, the archives in Dharamsala. Um, Moreover, as part of the Cham tradition, I was able to accurately identify these specific implements as bunda, or the sacrificial platform to which subdued guardians and protectors are bound um, during Cham, and to sacrifice and to suggest their continuity with the origins of Buddhist Tantra and its cultivation in Tibet through the ritual methods of Vajrakila, for example, and Drowa, or liberation through ritual killing, um, which share origins with the Kapalika, or skull bearer practices and methodologies of the Shaiva Bhairava corpus, for example. During this process of knowledge exchange and data gathering, I had two primary logistical and ethical concerns. The first of these was protecting the safety of my informants and the security of the objects. And for this reason, they have all been anonymized in my work. So I'll generalize and say, for example, a Nyingma Lama in Sikkim, uh, which is a pretty, pretty broad group, um, except where explicit permission was given to share personal information. 
at the same time, I only took photos of objects such as the scene here after obtaining the permission of its custodians and I've located them with very vague language again. So I would say Asaki Monastery in Kham, for example. One of the reasons for these cautions is that these objects are partially endangered by their high economic value, which is moreover facilitated by increasing enforcement of restrictions on the sale and transport of human remains across the region. And because these can sell for a lot of money on the global market as cultural properties uh, and also as specialized instruments to other practitioners, um, they are increasingly rare and protected. This was another reason why the photos of museum objects were very helpful. I could have or initiate indirect conversations about these objects, their materials and associated practices uh, without necessarily soliciting any specific identifying information about the location or community. My second methodological consideration was negotiating access to ritual information as a non-practitioner. Uh, however, I found that this latter issue was largely decided for me, um, as in the performance of Cham or in this assemblage of offerings in Alakang, uh, objects made with human remains are made visible often enough to the public, um, though in a setting and application controlled by skilled, qualified religious authorities or ritual operators. And as someone who was never initiated into a tantric lineage, uh, I have never been given access to the types of restricted specialist information, which is known and transmitted to practitioners. So what I was trying to do was work in a model informed by scholars like Hugh Urban, for example, uh, and focus my attention on the forms of the transmission of esoteric knowledge rather than its contents. Because my focus is technical and material, the sourcing and circulation of raw materials used to fabricate these objects was also an interest. Uh, I'm sure many of you will know Dan Martin's elegant model of cultural ecology, which relates the practice of exposure burial to the natural landscape of the Himalayan plateau and further uh, to the historical valorization and maintenance of charnel practices such as Che and Buddhism in Buddhism and Tantra. Um, However, I found the current dynamics for sourcing human remains used in ritual objects are conditioned uh, by financial limitations, restrictions on the sale and transport of human remains, migration, uh, and the social setting for use more often than the local method of burial. Firstly, the practice of dismemberment and exposure burial known as jator or scattering to the birds, uh, what is called sky burial in Chinese. Um, this rarely produces bones suitable for use as ritual instruments, often fragmented and embrittled due to exposure to strong sun and wind, such as you see here. Where skulls and femurs are donated to religious users by deceased practitioners or their families, these bones are removed during the preparation of the corpse for burial, regardless of the method of disposal, uh, which could be cremation or dismemberment and exposure or another method, um, according to astrological determinations, the social setting or financial concerns. Um, however, this type of direct donation is more likely found and more easily facilitated in small historically embedded communities such as monasteries. In other settings, uh, these materials can be sourced through a system of informal trade and commercial sale, with bones coming from a diversity of sources, including hospitals, cremation sites, and the disinterred bodies of adjacent religious communities, which is a cause of some sectarian tension in the southern Himalayas in particular. 
Um, moreover, I found there was a social economy to the preparation and fabrication of these objects, uh, where the person who sources them and cleans the bones is not necessarily the same, the person who activates them um, or determines their suitability for use. I spoke with a number of metal workers, for example, uh, who had been presented with human remains to which they were commissioned to add decorative elements. Some ascetic practitioners and ritual specialists admitted to preparing their own objects from corpses, but also acknowledged that it is a legal and social risk. Um, though I should note here that the illegality of these objects is nothing new in terms of their function in the instrumentalization of antinomian materials, practices, and social relationships, uh, which are found throughout the history of Tantra. Other practitioners describe both raw materials and finished instruments received or given as gifts um, or inherited. Where a user had a specific criteria for the shape or origin of these materials, procurement requires a substantial amount of investment, excuse me, a substantial investment of time, ritual expertise, and money. The effects of the increasing enforcement of restrictions on the circulation of human remains and changing pathways for sourcing raw materials can also be seen in the ways these objects are produced, including formal and stylistic variations. Uh, in Karak, which is the apron or girdle, uh, which is one of the ornaments of Haruka, used by the yogin or ritual performer who takes the form of the deity or one of the forms of deity, um, in these objects, the use of human bone as a substrate has historically facilitated carvings of volumetric forms um, and highly with a highly polished surface, such as this Yabium figure um, from the collection of the National Museum's Liverpool on the right. Um, where sections of the human femur have a relative density and workability, which is comparable to ivory, which is very rarely used. The types of animal bone common to the Himalayas, such as buffalo, uh, which is the type most often used for new commissions and objects produced for sale as cultural commodities, um, this kind of bone is generally less dense and more granular than the human femur and supports a shallow, low-relief carving technique um, and piercing work on a more translucent substrate, such as you see on the example from the Victorian Albert Museum on the left. Uh, the use of animal bone has also facilitated changes in the scale and shape of bone ornaments, as you can see. Um, this example on the left is much larger than any human bone, uh, and it's perfectly flat. At the same time, the use of animal bone or even plastic or resin uh, as an alternative to human bone for these ornaments has facilita facilitated the global exchange and circulation of these objects and associated practices and religious knowledge. I had a number of conversations about the increasing use of these alternative materials in the past century, uh, and this is also noted by Loseries Like in her 2008 uh, study on Tibetan ritual objects made from human remains. Um, and for many informants, the source of these materials or their specific criteria were less important or less consequential to their efficacy uh, than the skill of the ritual user. Many practitioners acknowledged the types of features valorized by the historic body of literature known as Tutag, for example, uh, which are manuals for the interpretation of the morphological characteristics of skulls, including the number of pieces or the color or shape. Um, or within certain local liturgical traditions, but they also conceded that an alternative like this painted coconut uh, could be just as effective in certain settings or applications. 
In the course of my research, I also found the suggestion of using a coconut as an alternative to a skull in the 11th century writings of the non-Buddhist tantric scholar Abhinavagupta. Uh, so the idea of using alternative materials in order to make these practices accessible to more and different social settings is not necessarily a new one. Here's another example of uh, material innovation in relation to uh, ritual efficacy. This is a Kangling on display in a shop in northern India uh, produced in the Kathmandu Valley, which is the re regional center for the production of Buddhist tantric material culture, um, exporting to Tibet and China, as well as Taiwan, Bhutan, Southeast Asia, and further abroad. Here, two sections of animal bone have been joined in the center of the shaft, leaving a gap which is hidden under a band of white metal, which is a zinc-based industrial alloy that was developed in the mid-19th century. The bell is shaped like the condyle or knee end of a femur, uh, but it's hollow. And because this instrument is made of many pieces and component parts, it is somewhat less practical than a complete uh, integral human femur for the performance of Che. Yet a few weeks after I took this photo, um, I saw someone practicing Che with exactly the same object. In addition to surviving accessible examples, I also worked with iconographic sources in combination with historical texts uh, to describe the longevity of these practices and the cultural historical narratives which have sustained this tradition of object making. Uh, and also to investigate their formal and historical diversity in Tibetan material religion. So this led me to investigate the origins and cultivation of Siddha iconography in Tibet and the Himalayan region, uh, where skulls and bone ornaments, such as those used here by Naropa and Tilopa in one of their earliest uh, representations from the early 13th century, Alchi Sunsek, um, how these objects were demonstrably valued part of the way, the ways in which Buddhist Tantra embraced forms of ritualized charnel asceticism, which were increasingly common to Shaiva and other Brahmanical communities uh, or shared with them across uh, South Asia after the seventh century. And particularly through the observances and practices of Yogini and Mahayoga Tantra. Uh, moreover, by investigating the representations of these figures as charnel ascetic yogins and uh, ritual masters, it is possible to describe how these materials and methodologies were refined and valorized by Tibetan religious institutions during their period of formalization after the Chidar, so after the 11th and 12th centuries. At the same time, by looking into the history of the Kangling, uh, I found that representations of Machi Ladron and her teacher Parampa Sange could be interpreted to indicate a material cultural history of the practice of Che and specifically the sadhana of Lujin uh, or the gift of the body of food uh, for which the thigh bone trumpet is used to invite guests such as Dakini and other volatile intermediaries. In later images of Matig, she is more often seen with the bell and Damaru, as on the left here, uh, while Padampa seated to her top left, also in the painting on the left, um, he holds the Kangling. Yet in a series of 14 three monuments, uh, it could be seen that Matig holds the Kangling, uh, and here is an example from the Alchi Tsatsapuri, uh, while Padampa's iconography during the same period is diverse and less consistently associated with the practice of Che. 
And according to his closest disciples in their writings, Padampa uh, did not use the Kongling or practice what he called Che or even Shijie, uh, though he did transmit, transmit the non-dual doctrines upon which these two traditions are based. Rather, Padampa's iconography with the Kongling is the result of his historic uh, historiographic integration and elevation as Machik's teacher and a source for the non-dual teachings, which would be formalized as Che and the, the tantric practice of Lujin. Moreover, though the feast offerings of Je have uh, an historic precedent in the tantric practice of Ganachakra, for example, so Tsoki Korlo, um, descriptions of the Kangling and its use in Buddhist Tantra are limited to Tibetan sources dated after the 12th century. Both Lujin and the Kangling can be understood as Tibetan innovations in the ritualization of charnel modes, materials, and practices developed in Buddhist Yogini Tantra through the Kangling. Um, by association with Padampa, uh, sorry, the Kangling by association with Padampa as the teacher of Machik, uh, the Kangling has been assigned non-local origins. Furthermore, uh, through the integration of Che into the methodologies of the Trulshik Chupa or the practice of the observance um, and other yogic or ritual specializations, the Kongling as well as the Dhammaru um, have been cultivated by religious actors whose purpose can be practical and social, for example, in the control of disease, weather, or the subjugation of local protectors and problematic deities. These applications for Lujin are represented in some of the earliest literature on the Che tradition and the integration of Che that is cutting with Che practice, uh, which is found in Golatsua's 15th century history, for example. One of the more successful outputs for this research has been in the refinement of vocabularies used by non-practitioners and scholars such as myself to describe these objects. Uh, the Damaru, for example, is a double-sided hand drum known across South Asia uh, and is known in Tibet as the Changtu by at least the seventh century. Um, but the skull Damaru, or in Tibetan Tonga, uh, is a specialized type of this drum, which is appropriate to the methods and observances of ritualized charnel asceticism, which are found in Mahayoga and Yogini Tantra. Uh, I was able to find this distinction in the 13th century writings of the Saki scholar Dr. Gelson, for example, uh, who drew it from descriptions of implements for the observance for observances found in the Samputa Tantra. Um, so I was able to trace that back. Another useful distinction is that between objects uh, which are made from human remains and constructed through a process of skill to form a repeatable function, uh, that is human remains which have been instrumentalized, uh, and relics, which are a large, dynamic, sometimes overlapping cat category of material religion with a long history in Buddhist cultures and monuments. Um, or even funerary objects and secondary burial practices, such as the creation and deposition of tzatza, as, such as you see here. Relics, however, are not shaped through a process of skill, uh, nor are they exclusively made of human remains, uh, being made also of texts, impressions, clothing, etc. Um, however, the capacity of human remains to suggest Buddhist soteriological, soteriological values, such as impermanence or interdependent origination, um, and to illustrate shared cultural narratives or social values, for example, the transformative potential of Buddhist and tantric ritual action towards or on the body, 
um, or the body's capacity to learn and do Buddhism um, or its capacity to transmit jinla, the gift of beneficial influence, for example. All of those capacities within human remains or within the human form factor into the sustained use, handling, and treatment of ritual instruments made from human remains uh, within communities of practitioners. So I want to wrap up my presentation um, with an example of an object which recently went on display at the British Museum in their show on the history and spread of Tantra. Uh, in preparation for the show, I participated in a series of workshops with the curators, as well as my colleague at Oxford, uh, Tupson Kessong, as well as others who may be on this call. Um, in order to discuss the handling and display of these objects and their inclusion in the exhibition. I should be very clear here that my contribution during these sessions was not curatorial, uh, but rather material and technical. I had researched this inscribed skull for my dissertation and found evidence that it had likely been sealed with the names of deities written in red on the interior. Um, and that is Om Yamantaka Hum in the center. And we haven't been able to read the rest of the text entirely because it's damaged, but I will share this image um, so you can have a crack at it. Uh, but there are five deities or mantra. Uh, uh, and Omahun written four times on the interior and carved once on the exterior, as you see on the right, though it's upside down. Um, what drew my attention, however, was this groove which had been cut uh, into the exterior just below the rim, as well as a section of loss along the side, uh, which you can see on the far left in this uh, altered image. Uh, and a sharp uh, wedge-shaped mark just here above the groove uh, between the text and the rim on the front of the object. So that's at the bottom of the object uh, on the right. On my fieldwork, I heard many speculations about how this object might have been used, but the most provocative suggestion uh, was that it had been ritually sealed. And the condition of the object suggests that this is likely, uh, with structural damage suggesting evidence of having been forced open at some point uh, during or before its acquisition by the collector who donated it to the British Museum at the end of the 19th century. Nevertheless, its use and the function of most of the skulls, which I examined here, uh, suggests that this object should be treated as a liturgical vessel. Therefore, while on display or when placed uncovered on its crown, it should not be empty, but rather filled with grains, fruit, or other auspicious materials, which will maintain what James Gentry has explored as an object's, uh, ritual object's capacity for relational activation, for example, or what can be understood as its pupta, uh, which is the object's capacity to establish or activate material and ontological continuity between ritual components. I was really pleased to see these uh, grains of rice in the skull here on display because it had been explained and demonstrated to me by a number of practitioners during my field work that this is appropriate for the handling and storage of these instruments. The alternative is to keep them covered or keep them turned down. 
while this gesture doesn't measure against the problematic displacement, acquisition, and historic misinterpretation of Tibetan cultural materials by colonial era collectors or scholars operating within their legacy, um, it is nevertheless encouraging to see an institution of this size and position acknowledge more and different perspectives on the handling and interpretation of human remains and Tibetan material religion. Uh, and I think I was actually just going to stop there and open it up to questions, if that's all right.